Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. Today we have an update on data and reporting developments relating to the EU Sustainable Finance Framework. This podcast is taken from a webinar we held on the 16th of June and in it you will hear members of the Irish Funds Servicing Data Working Group addressing the key aspects of implementation from an Irish Funds industry perspective. So the moderator is Cahill McGlinchey from KPMG. You'll also hear from Anita Donoghue from BlackRock, Leslie Bell from PwC, and Jack Lee from MUFG Investor Services. I hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content from Irish Funds. Good morning all. My name is Cahill McGlinchey and I head up Financial Reporting uh, Solutions in KPMG and chair the Irish Funds ESG Servicing and Data Working Group. Um, Our objective on the webinar this morning is to share ESG reporting updates and some practical insights, basically what's coming, um, when and how this should be addressed. So just in terms of some housekeeping items, we have a chat box open for questions. In terms of boundary management, we're probably not going to stray too far into some of the wider regulatory requirements. You know, those items will be covered in separate sessions later on this month. And I can refer to some of those at the end as well, some of the other material. So uh, to deliver this webinar, we've assembled a panelist of uh, industry experts from our Irish Funds Working Group. We have uh, Jack Lee, from Director of Product Development in MUFG. We have Leslie Bell, Director in PwC Asset and Wealth Management. And uh, Anita Donoghue, Global uh, Financial Reporting in BlackRock, the only member of the, the panel who doesn't have a Northern accent. So um, uh, other items, the session is going to be recorded and available after the webinar. And we can also uh, download the slides. There will be a survey to be filled in at the end. So um, just uh, just to note some of those housekeeping items. Uh, next slide just is in terms of what we're going to cover. We're going to have periodic reporting updates, principal adverse impacts, um, which is very, very topical, uh, some CSRD and ESAP updates. Um, and then there's a number of consultations out there, EFRAG, ISSB, and other developments. Um, that's going to be followed by a Q&A. And we're probably going to have a little bit of a wrap up just and uh, give you some details of other upcoming webinars. So as I mentioned, the slides will be available. And as we're getting questions through in the chat box as well, we'll try to wrap them in with uh, with uh, some, of the, some of the key topics. So without further ado, I'll probably just jump into the first section. Um, and maybe Anita, you can give us a little bit of background into the upcoming timeline. It's a fairly condensed calendar now between now and uh, this time next year. So if you give us a quick run through to year end in terms of some of the key milestones, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So the past 24 months have really seen a huge wave of European ESG regulatory and legislative changes. Um, So we've outlined some of the key dates that we're looking forward to in the second half of this year on this first slide. Um, So first up in August, we have the application date of the USITS and AFMD Delegated Acts on the 1st of August, and then MIFID 2 will follow on the 2nd, which are going to integrate sustainability risk and investor sustainability preferences into both all of the, each of these legislative regimes. And these these changes are forming part of the broader EU Sustainable Finance Action Plan. Um, so they're, and they're looking to complement the um, obligations under SFDR and taxonomy. The USITS and AFMD changes are generally going to require MANCOs to take into account sustainability risks and factors in areas such as governance and organizational structures, um, conflict of interest and risk management policies, um, and investment due diligence procedures, such as when selecting new investments. What's maybe important to note here is that these obligations are mandatory even for non-ESG Article 6 products under SFDR. So all asset managers are going to need to review and update um, their existing business plans and systems um, to make sure that they're incorporating the concept of sustainability into their daily operations. We're going to see similar updates for MIFID firms and insurance and reinsurance firms um, on the second with relation to that sustainability risk and factors integration um, and preferences into the overall organizational requirements and operating conditions for investment and insurance firms. Um, For example, under MIFID 2, we're now going to need to consider the client's sustainability preferences when we're assessing suitability. 
maybe more specifically on the MIFID side, um, member states have until the 22nd of August to adopt laws implementing the MIFID product governance uh, measures, which um, require investment firms that manufacture and distribute financial instruments to consider sustainability factors in their product approval, their governance and oversight procedures for any clients that they have with sustainability preferences. And these are going to need to be implemented um, or applied by the 22nd of November then. In relation to the new Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive or CSRD, um, so while this was originally expected or intended to come into effect for 2023, that was quite an ambitious timeline um, because it's, it's still being quite heavily debated at an EU level. So this one is really important to keep an eye on uh, for more information that gets released in the next few weeks or months because it is likely that this could get pushed out. Um, but I'm going to discuss the reporting impact of CSRD a little bit later on. Then under Article 7 of SFDR, so where they fall in scope, where they opt in, um, asset managers are going to have to make product disclosures as to whether or how a fund is considering the principal adverse impact considerations on sustainability factors um, in both pre-contractual and um, periodic disclosure templates for Article 8 and 9 funds. Um, uh, that's post 30 December 2022. And then maybe one of the most significant dates for your calendars is 1st of January 2023 with the application date of the SFDR regulatory technical standards um, which are going to apply for the pre-contractual and periodic reporting um, for Article 8 and 9 products. Um, also on that date we're going to have the four remaining taxonomy objectives becoming applicable and in terms of more specifically, non-financial undertakings are going to need to prepare their KPIs for all environmental objectives in respect of 22, but financial undertakings then are required to report from 1st of January 2024 in respect of 2023. Thanks very much for that, Anita. That's a good uh, whistle-stop tour of the, uh, of the calendar. Um, just in terms of PAA reporting, like, um, you know that that's that's very very topical, and uh, I know we've had previous papers out on this. Like, what's some of the key considerations uh, for you at the entity level or product level? You know, in terms of data gathering, and how are folks going to do this? So, I suppose firstly, um, Article Six of SFDR establishes a calculation methodology for PAI quantitative disclosures based on an average of four quarter end data points as opposed to using a snapshot at the at the end of the year. So that's maybe one point to highlight. Um, and maybe because this year is we're still in this implementation implementation phase, um, this data is likely going to be collected later in the year based on historic data for the, these past quarters. But one thing we would suggest is that it's important that there's a plan in place to make sure ongoing monitoring um, of these metrics is implemented um, throughout the period going forward. The EASA has actually released um, some clarifications on the draft RTS quite recently and in that they worked through a really useful practical example of how this calculation methodology is going to work. They, so they used a situation where you know, you might have an investment for the first six months of the year, um, but it's disposed of for the second half of the year, and you might need to determine, say, GHG emissions for the entire period. So in this case, they outlined um, that the assessment of the impact should be based on the average of the, the four holdings and the four values for each quarter end, with the assumption that something like GHG emissions data might only be available on an annual basis. So you would assume then that that would be distributed evenly and throughout 12 months. So, you know, it's really useful that we're getting some guidance like this and some practical examples to, to look at when you're working through the templates and um, to assess how you're going to be able to approach these reporting requirements. 
And these clarifications actually also confirmed um, that both direct and indirect investments should be included in the calculations. And this will include investment in funds or funded funds. So where an investment is, for example, in an SPV, the firm would look through to the underlying assets and um, to consider the total adverse impacts arising for the products. Um, you might have cases where the look through information isn't available I think uh, we've uh, Anita frozen uh, here at the moment, but um, maybe Leslie, in, in terms of just while while Anita's coming back there, maybe just touch on you know staying with the uh, staying with some of the reporting for uh, for the yeah. first of January. Like Absolutely. over the last couple of years, we've seen a huge amount of the uh, the timings pushed out. You know, for SFDR level one, we've seen a lot of sequencing issues. Do we expect to see any um, delay in terms of the uh, the date of implementation? Here, we see the first of January. Um, yeah. Do we expect to see any, Leslie, just uh, on, on that? Yeah, any more delays? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. That's it, so. Oh, sorry, Anita. I think are you maybe back with us? Yeah. Or maybe I can take that. Uh, I can take that uh, question, uh, Cahill. Yeah. No, I think at the minute, you know, there's absolutely no plan for any form of delay. Um, you know, I think as, as at, at the end of the day, you know, everybody should be planning for one Jan 2023. And um, you know, there is significant work that is going to have to be done. Um, so I think it's very much the case that um, even though there may be requests out there for mandates which are impacting you know, fossil and nuclear and also PAI plan that and assume that there's going to be no change. You know, there's a lot of work to be done. So I think safest bet is one Jan 2023. Thanks very much. Nita, you're you're back. Uh, yeah, I think you just froze there for for a second on us. But maybe just uh, on the periodic reporting, like you know, given the importance of planning for these disclosures and you know there's a fairly rigid template on it, like what are the key things people should be really focusing on right now? Like we have seen a sort of template there, you know, for, for some time. But as as we've been working through this, like in the working groups and in the individual companies, what's uh, what's some of the main sort of challenges you've been you've been seeing? Sure. Sorry, you can hear me okay now? Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Just to check. Um so there are quite a few challenges um to work through when preparing for this supporting. The first one is probably the templates themselves. Um, there's two templates for Article 8 and 9 funds, and it's mandatory that these templates are directly followed for these disclosures. Um, the RTS specifically states that the only allowable deviations that can be made are relating to adapting the size or the font type and the colors used. The content must be followed. So for preparers of financial statements, items like the sidebars or the icons from the template are going to need to be included. So it's important to consider how that style and presentation of these templates will align to your overall reports, um, given that these templates are going to be attached in an annex to the annual report. This is probably one of the key impacts of applying the Article 8 or 9 classification under SFDR because Article 6 funds with no specific ESG objective don't need to apply the template. So it is a significant increased reporting obligation for these funds. Um, and one section of the template to highlight um, is, the, is the section disclosing the top 15 investments of the fund, which is just included at the bottom of the slide there. So these investments should be selected based on the investments accounting for the greatest proportion of investments over the period and where you might have less than 15 investments accounting for half of the investments held, information on these investments only should be included. And in the RTS, there's various holdings disclosures required to be produced, but it's on a during the reference period basis, and there's no real clear methodology stipulated there. But um, maybe just taking back to what I referred to earlier on the PAI reporting methodology, this can be a useful reference where we could base the calculation on an average of four quarter end calculations. I think the key thing here is just, it's recommended that whatever methodology is chosen, that it's agreed with the key stakers involved in these disclosures, that it's adequately disclosed within the annual report and that it's adhered to going forward because you want to make sure that you have consistency in your reporting each year. And maybe an, another 
in terms of the challenges side of things on this as well is is really the lack of availability and consistency of ESG data that's required. I know Jack could probably get into this in a little bit more detail, but on the base, we really need to to assess how we'd work on this and, and certain reporting might need to be applied on a best efforts basis which includes clear narrative disclosing that that approach has been taking um, there's no real clear guidance on what a best efforts basis refers to but i guess it shouldn't be forgotten that the regulation is ultimately looking to bring greater transparency within the industry so ways you could tackle that and, and manage it is maybe including an explanation of the best efforts that have been made to achieve compliance with the requirements rather than you know including just stating or not including data and you putting in a disclaimer i think that's a way to work around it or maybe for pai indicator reporting disclosures could be included which would, would disclose um the coverage that has been achieved and maybe the steps that are being taken to improve the coverage um, but Leslie, maybe I, you might have some some other examples there on issues that you're coming across uh, yeah. on these many challenges. <laughs> <laughs> many, many challenges. So I think, you know, um, probably uh, another real challenge that the industry has faced is very much the need you know, for clarity in specific areas. And I think, you know, you've actually already touched on two, um, I'm going to say great updates that we've had come through in the past couple of months. One being the um, updates from the Commission as they responded to some of the EASES um, uh, questions, that the, some of the open questions, and also the clarifications which came through from the, uh, the EASES themselves. In terms of the Commission's responses to the EASES questions, you know we're absolutely not going through all of these in detail. Um, I think a few of the responses that came through as it relates to um, reporting and periodic reporting that are important to pull out. Firstly, the applicability of SFDR to products which are no longer being made available to new investors and in relation to their periodic reporting and website uh, disclosures. And the response that very much came through from the Commission was that even if they were closed to new investors pre-10th of March, um, they would still need to be drawing up the disclosures in line with the regulation for your Article 8 and 9 for periodic and website. So this may actually be something for people to consider, you know, if potentially a different approach has been taken in the past. Then the Commission also responded to questions around taxonomy alignment and, um, and the related disclosures. Again, we're not going to go into this in too much detail. Irish Funds is currently engaging with the central bank on updated guidance um, in this area and an update from Irish Funds in relation to this will issue uh, when the final guidance from central bank has been received. And there are other, another, uh, another uh, number of areas as well. But moving in the interest of time on to these clarifications which came through and were issued at the start of June. The one thing I would say is, you know, if people aren't aware of these, do go and look at them because they it's great to actually get this clarification from the EASES. And certainly, you know, Anita's already mentioned, you know, the fact that they did, for example, provide a worked example for greenhouse gas emissions would change during a period. You know, so to have that transparency and that clarification is super. They also gave um, updates and clarifications around you know, sustainability indicators and the required disclosures vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the principal adverse indicators and the relevant disclosures around that. Um, Look-through approaches, how to treat direct, indirect investments, etc. So again, if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend to go and have a look because this clarification is super that we're getting it. I think, you know, Anita's already touched about it on another area as well, data, massive data challenge. Um, and it's also sourcing the data. It's really important you know, to consider this now if you haven't already thought about it. A significant amount of data is going to be needed for these disclosures. And it's not just the data. We're also going to have to think about what is the, uh, the process, the procedure, the controls which need to be put in place around the data. Who's, what, what are the rules and responsibilities? And also what's going to flow through to the periodic report itself. The data challenge, it isn't a new challenge. It's a big challenge and it shouldn't be underestimated. And as Anita's already said, Jack is going to cover this in, in greater detail later on. Timing challenge. I'm assuming everybody has started planning, but if you haven't, start planning now. Engage with the investment manager, your management company, your AFIM, the board, administrators, data providers and other service providers. Familiarise yourselves with the templates. 
maybe try some mock-ups and start thinking, what's your timeline? If you have a 31 December year-end, you know, how are you going to get the right information into the periodic uh, reporting for your annual report itself? Really important, um, there is an alignment challenge here. There are other reporting obligations. You know, I know we're specifically talking about periodic reporting obligations here, but under, under SFDR, there are others. You have your pre-contractual and also your website disclosures. So don't forget the interconnectedness of all of these disclosures. You know, you don't want to be in a position where what you're going to put in your periodic report actually contradicts something which is going to be disclosed in your pre-contractual or is currently being disclosed in your website disclosure. And of course, you know, your pre-contractual and your periodics both have to be updated 1 Jan 23 for level two. In addition to the fact, as Anita had already mentioned, the PAI updates 30th of December. So all of these very much would say, don't look at these disclosure requirements in isolation. They all, the way I think of it, they need to tell a story. Effectively, what's been promised to investors through your pre-contractual, through to the website, and ultimately then to reporting on what's happened at period end through the periodic uh, uh, reporting disclosures. As I mentioned before, the fact if um, financial products are no longer being made available to investors pre 10th of March, you do still have this reporting obligation under periodics as confirmed by the Commission. Finally, in the area of audit, there's no requirement for audit um, uh, for uh, any form of assurance being required over level two in Ireland right now, though other jurisdictions may differ. So absolutely do, um, you know, if your product is being distributed to a number of jurisdictions, do check on each of those. The RTS did identify a voluntary approach could be adopted as it relates to uh, assurance of a taxonomy alignment and also some of the indicators. And if this voluntary approach has been adopted, just ensure you are going to a plan for it timing of it, think about timing, engage, and also ensure that the disclosures are updated um, in line with pre-contractual and periodic reporting docs. And I think probably two final things that I would say is um, uh, do look out for the uh, Irish Funds Q&A on level two reporting, which is going to be issued soon. And also, secondly, look out for any updates or changes in the coming months coming through from the Commission, the EASAs, and also the Central Bank. So I think, Cahill, can I hand to yourself? Yeah, thanks very much. There's some very good messages in there, Leslie. And I think, um, you know, there's a 15-page um, document coming out now, the Q&A um, on the uh, ESG reporting group brief. And then also, you know, you mentioned the ESA's um, clarifications. It's a 12-page document, like, so some of this stuff isn't going to be terribly time-consuming to get through. So a couple of good reference documents there. Uh, just in the interest of time, um, I might jump on to you know the next slide in terms of like covering some of the data challenges. So Jack, um, we did a huge exercise in the Irish Funds Working Group last year um, for May 2021 on PAI uh, data and you know the 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 vendor side of it. Like um, like how much has things improved? Like have we sorted out all those gaps? There was a lot of red on the board last year. So just just to give a recap, Cahill, um, like. For those who obviously weren't aware of the study or, or want to have a look at it, so in May 2021, we did do that study, looked at the principal adverse impact indicators with ESG vendors. Uh, and I suppose what we did was we analyzed a sample portfolio, which included seven listed equities, which were across different industries and markets, and also included two sovereign bonds. Um, this particular study focused on the public markets um, and not on the private markets at all, because it's obviously much more complicated to get data um, for, for private assets. So I suppose in the initial survey, nine vendors responded to the study um, and the results ultimately showed that there was patchy coverage across the mandatory uh, PAI indicators. And what that really meant was no single vendor with more than, had more than 70% coverage. I suppose what this really meant for financial market participants was that they would likely have to engage with multiple ESG data vendors to increase the coverage for PAI reporting going forward. Uh, and Leslie had sort of touched upon this, you know, getting prepared uh, and making sure that you're starting to engage um, with vendors for, for PAI reporting. I suppose from a data perspective, there was uh, quite a variance in terms of what we are seeing from the ESG vendors. And we'll touch upon this uh, as we go through um, some of the slides now um, in, the, in the next few minutes. Again, the, the other uh, outcome from the study was that the comparability and suitability uh, of the data that was provided was, was quite poor and actually not really aligned to SFDR. And what we found was that 
in actual fact, a lot of the vendors had mapped their existing ESG data requirements to SFDR rather than looking specifically at the requirements um, to determine actually what, what was going to be required to be reported going forward. Next slide. So this year in, in February 2022, we, re we performed that study. We again reached out to the same um, nine ESG data vendors. And in actual fact, we reached out to an additional uh, six ESG data vendors as well. Ultimately, 10 vendors came back to us on the study. Um, some of them chose not to respond. Some of them chose, or some of the new ones that we added to it. Um, but ultimately, from, from the analysis, what we can see, the coverage is actually still um, patchy um, in terms of those mandatory PAI indicators. What we're seeing is, is that there's good coverage um, for 18 of the 14 indicators. Uh, and it's no surprise that some of the uh, indicators that are limited are actually quite complex in terms of reporting. And what we'll see is that ultimately from the underlying companies, they are not reporting this information at the moment. Um, I know Anita is going to talk about CSRD uh, uh, later on in the presentation, but the likelihood of uh, a regulation like CR CSRD will enhance some of these uh, areas where there is limited availability of data because it will actually put the onus on those underlying companies to start reporting on it going forward. Next slide. Uh, on this particular slide, we've tried to capture some of the changes uh, from the initial study. Um, so what we can see is, is that um, some of the vendors uh, have used their own methodology to assess uh, against some of the indicators. So I touched upon that where they've mapped their own uh, metrics to SFDR or they've actually applied a specific methodology uh, to what they think is the requirements for SFDR. So there's, there's a bit of disconnect between um, what the re regulatory requirements under SFDR are saying and obviously what the vendors are producing. Overall, what we've seen is an improvement in greenhouse gas reporting, emissions to water, hazardous waste, and controversial weapons. And although emissions to water and hazardous waste are still very limited, what we're actually finding now is that some vendors are reporting this data, which wasn't available in the original study. So that's, that's a key improvement in terms of where we were 12 months ago at this stage. From a sovereign's perspective, um, the study found that there was an improvement in greenhouse gas intensity, but from a social violations perspective, actually it had worsened. I think the big challenge for the vendors is just trying to get access to this information when, when looking at sovereigns. So again, um, some of them are using AI technology to, uh, to try and gather this information, uh, whether it's through scraping through internet, uh, internet news or insights, um, or, or different uh, other media outlets in order to gather this information. So there is a bit of a challenge in terms of, of, of getting the, the information on sovereigns. Um, next slide. I suppose the one thing that, um, that we tried to look at was that because the coverage was uh, patchy and because in certain areas where we actually thought there was better coverage of ESG data, we actually tried to analyze uh, in a bit more detail some of the, some of the areas. So for example, with uh, greenhouse gases for scope one and two and carbon intensity, pretty much all of the vendors have provided uh, data uh, back to the study on that. Now, what we found was when we did the deep dive, um, actually there was quite a wide range of data points provided uh, across each of the seven companies that we analyzed. Uh, and what we, I suppose, you would normally expect that scope one and two uh, greenhouse gases uh, for, for companies, for example, might be gathered through annual reports or sustainability reports. So it's unusual to see that actually there's quite a wide range and variance in terms of the, of the data provided. Some of the reasons uh, for, for the wide range is timing. So what we find is, is that some of the data that's been provided um, is relating to prior periods. So in some cases it relates to 2019, some cases it relates to 2020, and in some cases relates to 2021. And so for example, um, when we look at the majority of the vendors, the data actually reported even as of today relates to 2020, even though 2021 data is available. So there is that, timing and consistency as to when the uh, ESG vendors actually analyze and publicize the data um, on, their, um, on their platforms. Again, I've touched upon this from a methodology perspective. 
um, whether or not they're mapping the PAIs to their existing ESG information, or they've created a methodology to calculate carbon intent, uh, for example, carbon intensity. So you can see like in the carbon intensity metric, um, it's actually completely uh, wide and, and varying in terms of the results from that. And, and part of that is, is that um, some of the vendors are, are using their own methodology to calculate carbon intensity. Um, the last piece then um, is around actually how do the ESG vendors gather the data. So again, I've mentioned whether it was from a sustainability report or an annual report. Um, some are gathering it from websites, news articles. Um, so it's important to understand where your vendor is gathering the information from and actually how they're capturing it. Um, because otherwise, uh, you may not be able to report on some of the mandatory PAI indicators going forward. And again, depending on which data vendor you use or multiple vendors, for two products that have the exact same portfolio, you may come out with completely different outcomes um, in terms of PAI reporting. So just bear that in mind, as, obviously, as you're planning uh, for reporting going forward. One other thing to note is, is that when we did the study this time, um, we actually looked at the other 46 voluntary PAI indicators. Um, and we asked the question to the data vendors, you know, how many of these indicators are actually available uh, on your platform right now? What we found was is that um, of the 46 voluntary indicators, only seven of those indicators uh, were there was actually good data available. So effectively for the other 39 indicators, there was limited or, or no data available for it. So um, it is something to bear in mind, obviously, when you're considering the voluntary indicators as well. From discussions with the ESG data vendors, um, they're hoping to increase that coverage significantly over the next 12 months. But again, their big challenge is obviously trying to get this information from the underlying companies and making sure that it is um, reported as is. And I suppose I did mention this, obviously the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Director will, hope, will hopefully increase that reporting um, because it will focus down to the SMEs uh, uh, later on uh, in the future, as well as some of the private companies uh, in terms of being caught under that scope from a, from a size perspective. That's great, Jack. A lot of challenges there. You know, I know you touched on timing and that, but um, in terms of just the overall uh, vendor data, like how comparable and suitable is this data just for for use by uh, by administrators and managers at the moment? I think at the moment it, it is challenging, but for for the majority of whether it's administrators or asset managers, uh, we've talked about best efforts, and Anita sort of mentioned this in terms of. You know what can you do in terms of gathering information if there if information is not available and i think what we need to consider is look you, you need to use best efforts what does that mean there's no clear guidance but potentially engaging in three or three to five uh vendors to collect data so you know you may have a policy in place that one vendor is your primary vendor, similar to a pricing policy. You use a second vendor where you can't get information um, and, and so forth. But ultimately, what you get to is you get to getting um, better coverage by using multiple vendors. And this is specifically on the raw ESG data, so it is. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of what's important. The other thing that's important then is actually being transparent about actually what is being reported. So... For example, um, what, what I've seen some asset managers considering at the moment is, well, if only 70% of our portfolio is covered by PAI, well, actually making that disclosure that only 70% of your portfolio is available, um, actually, again, is being transparent and it's in the spirit of the uh, of the, the SFDR regulation. So making sure that obviously you are working towards getting better coverage, but you know, at a point in time, if you only have 70% coverage, at least making that disclosure to the uh, to your investors obviously helps from a transparency perspective and also gives regulators uh, more of a sense in terms of you know what actually is out there and as they start to do the analysis and compare you know products and disclosures going forward that's great yeah i mean and you mentioned like i mean that uh, that asset managers and uh, and administrators probably are using somewhere between three to five vendors like i mean you know, for for portfolios that, you know, have, you know, sustainable investments as well, I know you're going to come on to taxonomy alignment, like, but what are the challenges facing the managers in performing that taxonomy alignment piece? You know, I think, um, you, you know, we've got a question in, I think, already, which I'll probably address separately at the end as well on that. 
Yeah, no, I think I've got something covered in this in the next slide. So, like asset managers that have sustainable investments do face a difficult task in terms of doing a taxonomy alignment assessment. And I think the timing of the implementation of the taxonomy is actually not ideal. And part of the reason for that is, is that um, when we think about it, non-financial, uh, sorry, um, yeah, non-financial undertakings that are caught under the non-financial reporting directive have been asked to report on taxonomy eligibility for 2022. And they're only being asked to, uh, to report on taxonomy alignment in 2023. So part of the challenge is, is that a lot of these uh, companies that are reporting, or that will be reporting taxonomy alignment in 2023, this information may not be available when, say, the funds actually uh, do, their, do their sign off. So, and I think uh, Leslie had sort of mentioned this around, you know, um, funds currently lend their pre-contractuals are, are looking at, you know, disclosing a certain percentage as to what, you know, what is a sustainable investment. And then obviously when it comes to periodic reporting, um, there is a bit of a challenge in terms of, you know, how are our fund uh, managers going to do that assessment. So I think that's, that's going to be part of the biggest challenge. I think what Irish funds did as well, just, just to kind of highlight here, is, is that we did a, a taxonomy uh, alignment uh, slash eligibility and alignment assessment. And we analysed, again, some uh, some investments with some of the, the data vendors. And some of the companies, um, what you can see here in this particular slide, have actually chosen and have voluntarily chosen to do an alignment assessing uh, assessment using the substantial contribution criteria for climate change mitigation and adaptation. Um, and I think the lack of consistency in reporting in the taxonomy um, comes down to two things. One is companies have only done eligibility. Some have voluntarily chosen to do alignment. And then we've also got the four other environmental objectives, which still haven't been finalized. Uh, and yet, you know, funds and asset managers are being asked to do that taxonomy alignment. So I, I think there's there's obviously a big challenge here uh, and we need to make sure that as as we sort of go through this approach and we're you know assessing the vendors, um, each of the vendors are, are coming up with uh, potentially their methodologies for alignment assessment. So it's again making sure that you know which vendors you're selecting, you're comfortable with their approach and actually can you get to a point where you can mix a disclosure specifically around, you know, how much of your fund is actually taxonomy aligned going forward. I think if you skip uh, to the next uh, slide, um, it's kind of just highlighting here, um, when we picked two particular companies, we looked at, you know, whether or not they had um, been taxonomy aligned from a substantial contribution perspective. You know, we assessed it then, did they consider that they do no significant harm and obviously the uh, minimum safeguards as well. And you, as you can see, like there's across each of the vendors, there's quite a varying response to, to Tesla being what we would assume as being an environmentally friendly company, considering that they make electric, uh, electric vehicles. Obviously, some of their other practices might, um, might sort of cause questions, but from you know assessing their business and their revenue, you can see that they do make a substantial contribution. Again, it's in, uh, similarly when you look at all of your investments, you're going to have to perform a similar assessment to that. So it is looking at at that detail and 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 a bit more and um, a bit more granular. I suppose the, some of the other key findings from the analysis. I think on the next slide we've kind of tried to highlight these. Um, so some vendors provide granular detail in terms of taxonomy alignment, while others have little or no explanation. So again, engaging with vendors is a, is a key part of that. Some vendors have mapped their data points to the taxonomy rather than determining the, if the metrics are actually applicable. And the third is, is that some uh, vendors provide details on how they've done the do no significant harm assessment, while others are just saying it's either yes or no. So again, making sure that whichever vendor you do choose is, a, is an important part of this process and making sure you understand their process for, for doing taxonomy alignment. Ultimately, the lack of consistency and clarity as to how the data will be presented um, is likely going to be limited um, in the near future. Um, but what it does mean is, is that um, it doesn't take away the responsibility for fund managers to start considering it, how and and when they will start to make that particular disclosure and we we expect that the cbi will come out with some guidance on this um in the near future 
Um, so therefore, it is something that we need to uh, we need to just be aware of at this point. Yeah, that's probably a timely thing to mention there, uh, Jack. Just before I come back, maybe on some more of the practical items, we have been getting questions in from the audience, like on uh, you know taxonomy alignment reporting. So I might just just touch on that as well briefly. Like, like you mentioned there, that Irish funds, Irish funds engaging with the central bank on updated guidance that will issue. You know, and uh, an update from Irish funds will be coming, like really to help with a lot of these questions on taxonomy alignment reporting. So a lot of that's been coordinated through both working groups, the data working group, and also the policy and legal working group. So um, as soon as final guidance comes to the central bank, uh, Irish funds will be out pretty promptly with that. You know, we've got a few other reg updates as well in the in the coming weeks. But maybe just back to maybe just a final question on this, Jack, is really around. You know, who does the responsibility fall with, like for uh, re performing these reporting services for uh, taxonomy and SFDR? Where are you? Where you seeing it? I think ultimately the responsibility lies with uh, the directors of the fund, right? Given that they've got overall responsibility for that, but the the likelihood is is that they have um, they've an asset manager that's been engaged, you know, to perform asset management services, and the likelihood is that the asset manager is you know, assessing or integrating ESG characteristics into their uh, into their investment product. So, I mean, it's a combination of both in terms of where, where that lies, uh, where the responsibility lies. I suppose, depending on the size of the asset managers, some of them are actually turning to administrators um, to support and preparing PAI reporting. And part of the reason for that is, is that uh, a lot of administrators are already doing some type of regulatory reporting for, for investment funds. Um, the administrators also have, you know, a number of contracts with some of the data vendors. So again, getting access to ESG data might be a much more cost-effective way of doing it for some of the smaller managers. Um, but ultimately, I suppose the one thing to note is that responsibility is not with the administrator; it is for them to support on ESG integrating um, these disclosures uh, for for the investment fund. The responsibility still lies with the asset manager and the directors, and they need to be comfortable as to what is being disclosed in the periodic reports, which Leslie and, and Anita have touched on today. So it is really important from that perspective um, that, you know, we, we, I suppose from an investment product perspective, we ultimately know who is responsible, who's going to support, and actually where is the data going to come from um, at the end of the day. There is on mute there. Is that super, Jack? Listen, um, I know we're we're getting getting pushed for time here. So, um, Anita, do you want to come in on any of that that items? Or I know you've uh, we're we're gonna pop on to maybe the next slide on CSRD as well and uh, ESAP. So, uh, ESAP made a lot of uh, has been making a lot of uh, make a lot of headlines. You know, the establishment of the ESAP really is a primary flagship action for the CMU. So, like Irish Funds has responded to multiple consultations on this and is very supportive. You know, I think the purpose of ES, ESAP, like, really is to ease the burden. You know, have a central repository for for all the uh, separate legislative information. Um, could you maybe give us a quick whistle stop tour of what's what also has happened, like, uh, on the on the ESAP side? Yeah, sure. So I might maybe talk through. Um, some of the overall wider feedback to the ESAP proposal that's been published now, because I think the main themes align with the response from Irish funds. Um, and it's good to, to look through some of the, the feedback and the recommendations that have been made. Um, I think the key message to focus on is that ESIP is not solely focused on ESG. It's covered stretches um, across over 35 existing legislative frameworks. But I think overall respondents to with feedback um, have agreed that priority should be given to sustainability information being collected first because you know it's argued the building of ESAP should really start small um, and give that priority to sustainability because we, we don't really have any system for EU-wide distribution of sustainability information. So um I think it, it's it's going to be very helpful to support the the other sustainability regulations, I guess, FDR and taxonomy. Um, it's good to note as well that the ESAP isn't going to create any new reporting obligation in terms of content, but it's rather just going to be building on existing disclosure requirements and um, 
it'll be limited to what's already mandated corporate or ESG disclosure information that's intended for, for more public use. Um, the majority of respondents agreed that the information should be available to all investors free of charge and um, potentially there might be some a proportionate fee for if you have frequent users or that are extracting a larger volume of data over time but I think overall we, we agree that it should be a, a free service um, and in terms of using the data information should be available um, in a data extractable format so that you'll be able to allow comparability between um, two data points and then one feedback point on that was that the information should be machine readable um, as well so you know it, it's trying to just make sure it's a it's really functions in a in a practical way um, for all users um, then in terms of timing, I think unanimously respondents called on the Commission to consider a more spread out implementation for ESAP. Um, I think ESAP is going to be really helpful in centralising and standardising information um, that financial services firms can now rely on. But the other side of that then is firms are going to need to um, implement significant systems or controls updates to make sure that they're ready to submit all of the required information at the appropriate time and in, in the appropriate format so that it gets submitted to the collection bodies um, in terms of submitting that into ESAP. So yeah, there's just a few things that need to be worked through as part of um, the plan and, and implementation timelines still to go, but I think um, there's definitely overall been huge support to, to roll this out. Thanks very much. And you know, yeah, I think we got a little bit of a shock when we saw it. Like there was dozens of directives and regulations in there initially within the scope. So, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, a suggested staggered approach, and there was some very good feedback from the different uh, nations as well. I know there was a lot of feedback from Poland and uh, some of the other members as well on on ESAP. So there's a huge amount of engagement there. Um, maybe just to touch on CSRD, I know I've got a couple of mentions already. Um, Leslie, maybe if you want to take us through maybe some of the interlinks there. I know Jack touched on it a little bit as well, like with you know some of the some of the the key issues. Like I know we've we've uh, we've touched a little bit on timing as well. Yeah, maybe. Um, I know I, I've kind of maybe briefly touched Leslie. If you don't mind, I might just jump in here. Um, but I talked about a bit about this a bit earlier. So it, in terms of when CSRD actually does come into effect um, and how companies are going to then need to start reporting on sustainability risks and opportunities impacts and um, there's going to be quantitative sustainability KPIs that are going to need to be disclosed um, but I suppose overall it's going to replace the existing non-financial reporting directive or NFRD um, but it will significantly extend the scope of the companies that are going to be required to report um, and it's going to expand the range of reporting requirements that they're going to have to um, be obligated to follow. Um, I think there's so many sustainability regulations and different reporting requirements being released at the at the moment, but uh, it can be difficult to to grapple with each and what the impact is going to be on your funds reporting. Um, but on an overall level, they are generally interlinked and um, they form part of the broader EU sustainable finance action plan. And I think in terms of CSRD, uh, one of the key objectives is that it will ensure alignment with other sustainable finance regulations like your SFDR and taxonomy. Um, so an example of this is that the reporting standards to be developed under CSRD are going to specifically include the ESG reporting metrics under SFDR and taxonomy. Um, so this then will ultimately help asset managers in collating the data that they need to, to prepare their detailed level two reporting requirements. So, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing here. Once this information under CSRD is going to really help get that data issue that we're seeing that Jack mentioned earlier. Um, some of the other links between them are CSRD is going to mandate um, reporting respect of PAI indicators within the NC level PAI statements um, and it's going to build on things like the do not significant harm, do no significant harm criteria under taxonomy. So I think in terms of what I mentioned in the expanded reporting requirements as well, um, it's going to require companies to report on things like 
their governance policies, um, strategy, risks and risk management, um, and metric reporting in terms of targets that are set by companies in relation to sustainability matters and the progress that that company is making in meeting those targets. So, yeah, definitely a lot of crossover uh, between these regulations. So, really is essential that CSRD isn't introducing, you know, a duplicative reporting burden um, on the same or maybe similar ESG issues that might be already um, introduced under SFDR. Um, so I suppose on this point, I know Irish Funds has supported the position of Asama in this area, and it's calling to for the exclusion, call for the exclusion of funds from the scope of CSRD because you know it's already subject to SFDR reporting. So we just want to make sure that um, it, it's practical from that side of things. Thanks very much, Anita. Um, yeah, so Leslie, now that you're you're on as well, like we might uh, take a quick uh, run through. There's there's quite a few proposals out there for yeah. new sustainability standards. Um, I know we're coming up uh, short on time as well, but we've already put in a few questions and as we're going along. So yeah, maybe if we take a quick uh, a quick run through. I know we've got EFRAG, ISSB, and uh, and SEC proposals That's out it. there at the moment. Yeah. Yep, no worries at all. And thanks for that, Cahill. Um, yeah, so the current consultation on DRIFRAG is organised to receive feedback on three aspects of the exposure draft and is open until the 8th of August there. And it's very much hoped that the consultation itself is going to help to assess, you know, the efficiency of entity uh, materiality assessments and its practical impl implementation, the relevance of the uh, proposed mandatory disclosure requirements, and also the to give an opportunity and criteria to consider as it relates to implementation, prioritisation and also phasing in options. By way of background, um, the exposure drafts themselves correspond to the first set of standards re uh, required under the proposed uh, CSRD. You know, so here again, we're beginning to see some interlinkages there as you know, Anita and Jack as we're all emphasising. Um, and these uh, are very much are grouped under, I'm going to just call it four categories, um, environment, social, governance, and also strategy, risk, and opportunities. And I think the three areas that are going to be covered by the, the consultation very much are relating to, firstly, relevance. You know, the relevance of the proposed architecture, and this is going to cover, you know, the practicality and efficiency of the proposed approach to materiality. It's also going to cover as to whether, does it actually meet the goal about quality of sustainability information? And it's also going to consider, you know, is a right balance being struck between the information that's going to be produced and also the usefulness and also the cost of having to produce that information and also the completeness in terms of the data points which are going to come through under the disclosure requirements. It also then kind of looks in terms of, you know, the possible options for prioritising and phasing in the implementations of the SRS. Again, trying to get this balance between addressing the CSRD requirements on one hand and on the other hand, stakeholder expectations. Because, you know, as Anita was referring to before, you know, for some entities to perform, you know, some of their um, other sustainability reporting disclosure requirements, they're going to need this information, which is coming through under CSRD as well. And then also the, the final area covered by the consultation relates to the adequacy of each disclosure requirement. Of note, um, recently, EFRAG also made available a set of basis of conclusions, which do supplement these exposure drafts. And whilst these are not part of the consultation, you know, I'd say very much, you know, they do actually provide a really good overview of the objective and also context of each of the draft standards. And so some people listening may find them actually really useful to have a wee look through. Now, if we go on to the next slide, I'll quickly hit on the IWSB. Um, so there are currently um, two open consultations and one staff paper, which is asking for feedback. And the proposals themselves build upon, you know, recommendations flowing through from TCFD, and they incorporate the industry-based disclosure requirements from the SASB standards. Again, they've been developed in response to requests for enhanced information and disclosures from companies as they relate to the sustainability-related risks and also opportunities. The first consultation there on the left-hand side of the slide there is relates to the general requirements for these disclosures. And these general requirements, they very much, you know, are providing a core framework for the disclosures. And under these requirements, you know, a company will be disclosing material information about significant sustainability-related risks and also opportunities. 
with the hope of ultimately allowing investors to make informed decisions on a company's enterprise value. And it's this real focus on enterprise value because it's very much felt that the information which is currently being included in um, financial statements, just it isn't enough to get into the, the heart of enterprise value. And these disclosures are going to focus on a company's governance, its strategy risk management, and also the metrics and targets which are being used to measure, manage, and monitor significant sustainability-related risks. Second consultation relates to specific climate-related disclosures. Um, and again, the goal is that so that you know the users of a general purpose financial reporting will actually be able to assess the impact of the risks and opportunities on an entity's financial position, performance, and cash flow, an entity's enterprise value, and also its strategy and business model. It uses the same approach as the general requirement uh, exposure draft. So you, whenever I referred to the um, to, to the need uh, in terms of governance, strategy, risk management, um, uh, metrics and targets, and also um, it also in, in this instance also uh, looks to include requirements for companies to include information as it relates to climate-related physical and transition risks. So the consultation for these two ends on the 29th of July, and then there is just, a, as we just thought it'd be useful to include on the slide there, uh, that there is a staff paper out with request for feedback by the 30th of September. So I'm going to quickly fly over to the US in terms of the SEC and some recent updates. Um, a climate disclosure did come out in late March, I'm sure many are aware of it. And this is where you know, certain climate-related financial metrics are going to be, have to be included in the audited accounts. And this will also include disclosures around carbon emissions. The required disclosures are very much for uh, domestic registrants and also foreign private issuers. Issuers and, uh, include disclosures around climate-related physical and transitional risks, disclosures around governance of climate-related risks and the relevant risk management processes, and then finally, disclosures around scope one and two, greenhouse gas emissions, with scope three, excuse me, three being a phase in um, and being required if material or if included in um, an entity's emission reduction goals or targets. Then two more recent updates from the SEC came in at the end of May or came out at the end of May and they relate and they will impact funds and advisors. And in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through these. But um, one proposal is around enhanced disclosures for funds and investment advisors who are marketing themselves as having an ESG focus. And secondly, the other expands on the applicability of the SEC's names rules to funds, uh, which focus on a particular investment strategy, example, ESG. So again, Cal said I was going to keep it short, try to keep yeah. it as short as possible there. And um, maybe we, should, we move to some Q&As. Yeah, well, maybe just just to, to maybe tie up some of that together as well. Like, I mean, I think the, the the main items probably underpinning all these proposals is the good news is, I suppose, TCFD framework really forms a shared input to all these. So, you know, there's they're all going to have the greenhouse gas emissions reporting one and two. So there's a lot of commonality here. I suppose the challenges are where they're not entirely aligned. Like EFRAG probably has wider scope and scale and double materiality. But you know, on the on the flip side as well, there is staggered you know, um, implementation suggested where there is implementation on these. So, you know, there's a lot coming down, but I suppose the big message of convergence here is is very positive as well, because we probably haven't had that in, you know, other reporting standards. So I know we've had a lot of questions come in as well. So maybe just a very, very quick one, maybe uh, just on the, um, just on the actually the timing, like, so, you know, maybe to Anita, like, I mean, you know, the requirements for 30th of June 2022 and 30th of September 22 financial statements and maybe some clarity around the implementation date as well, 1st of January 2023. What, is, what does that really mean for, for, uh, for you know, reporting preparers? Yeah, sure. So I suppose, first of all, in terms of 30 June um, impact, the level one obligations are, are continuing to apply for all reports issued for the rest of 2022 and we're going to transition then to the level two reporting for all reports that are issued from 1 January 2023 and it's important to note that this is regardless of the reference period or if your financial year-end date falls prior to that date and um, so for example a fund with a year-end date of 30 September 2022 publishing their annual reports in January 2023 
will fall in scope of the level two periodic reporting obligations. And I think this is probably where it's going to pose some challenges because we're effectively reporting using a level two template for a period where you're likely going to have your level one PCD in place. So ultimately, those level two commitments won't be made. Um, now, this example is based on a fund filing their financial statements within four months of your end in line with the deadlines. But what's maybe interesting to call out here is that if a fund was to accelerate that timeline to three months and file prior to 31 December 2022, they would then fall out of scope of the level two disclosures. So I think it's just, it just really highlights how important, important it is that you're aware of these key deadlines. Super. Uh, thanks very much for that, Anita. I know we got a couple of questions in, so we've been trying to blend them in as we're going through. But um, you know, definitely just to mention that we had one on Manco responsibilities as well. So we do have a upcoming uh, webinar Tuesday week, the twenty eighth, um, on EU sustainable finance duties for fund management companies. There is a paper also being issued, so the flyer for that's going to go out this afternoon. It's at eleven a.m. on Tuesday week. So just to note that, and that'll cover. All the duties and the other the other interrelated responsibilities as well around uh, around implementing sustainable finance for uh, for fund management companies. So I think the, you know some of the key messages today. A lot of you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of work going on in the regulatory side. There's a lot of new standards coming, but there's positive uh, messages around convergence. You know challenges definitely remain with data, but you know firms are getting on with best efforts there. So um, you know I think I'd just like to take the time just to thank uh, you know. The, uh, the Irish Funds team, David Shirley, Patrick Rooney, for all their help putting this together. Um, and also thank the panellists, you know, Jack, Leslie and Anita for their contributions this morning. I hope everybody found it informative and uh, it, like, uh, we'd like to thank you for your attendance and hopefully we'll see you soon at the next Irish Funds update. Thanks.